Kultur. 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 This is the Kulturstammtisch. My name is Eric Facon. Hello. The Kulturstammtisch is a weekly cultural discussion among a group of culturally interested people based in Switzerland. And Switzerland is our theme for today. Switzerland, a small country in the heart of Europe, but not part of political Europe, a small country in the midst of the Alps, a crossroads of the cultures. There are many foreign people living in this small country. Approximately 25% are foreign nationals, and two of them are with me today. Marcy Goldberg, film scholar and cultural critic from Canada, and Dick Buse from Britain, author of books about Switzerland, such as, for example, Swiss Watching. And we'd like to talk about our relationship with this country, with Switzerland, And let's just say before we begin that this is not a political podcast, but we will naturally touch upon politics as well. I understand that both of you have become Swiss citizens. Now, Marcy Goldberg, how long have you been Swiss? I've been Swiss since July 2019. So that means I'm no longer part of the 25% of the population that is a foreign national and doesn't have the right to vote, although they pay taxes. Um, I started the process at the end of 2017. There was kind of a push um, in the city of Zurich to encourage people um, who are eligible for citizenship to apply. I actually got a letter from the mayor of Zurich telling me that, you know, if I felt like it, I should go for it. Um, and uh, I so I did. And uh, that, that so the process took um, about a year and a half in total. Uh, I became a Swiss citizen in July 2019 and I lost my first votes in September 2019, when uh, most of the things that we voted on uh, did not go my way. Dickon, what about you? Since when have you been Swiss? Um, since May last year, so May 2020, even though I started at the same time as Marcy. Um, Bern is slow uh, with everything. It's famous in Switzerland for being slower. It is always the last to count any votes in any referendum. And the people walk more slowly and talk more slowly and process everything more slowly. So it took almost three years for me. Um, and I had my first vote September last year when I won everything, amazingly, um, <laughs> because it was, a, it was a mega vote because everything had been postponed because of Corona. And so we had five really big votes. And uh, luckily, everyone agreed with me. Mm. Um, which is the way it should be, of course. Um, <laughs> you seem to take all this business really personally, both of you. <laughs> uh, for me, it's uh, really interesting because um, as a Brit living abroad, I lost my right to vote in March last year because after 15 years of outside the country, Britain, Brits can no longer vote. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, which was a huge factor in the Brexit referendum because obviously millions of British living abroad could not vote in the referendum, which affected them directly. Um, so I was in the classic case of taxation without representation mm. anywhere. And I believe someone had a revolution about that some while ago. Um, and so that was one of the main motivations for me to become Swiss was to regain a right to vote where I live, where my home is now and where I pay tax. Mm. To have a say in politics. Yes, and especially in Switzerland, where you have an even greater say. You have a say every three months, and it's mm. very interactive if you want it to be. Marcy, what about you? Do you still have the right to vote in Canada? or No, um, I don't. And uh, yeah, I was also disenfranchised because at the time when Stephen Harper, a conservative uh, right-wing prime minister, was prime minister, they took away um, 
the right to vote for Canadians living abroad. Um, I think it's uh, something like two years uh, and then you lose the right to vote. So that's something I've been living with for, for a while. And um, yeah, it was a really, it was a frustrating feeling not to have a say anywhere. Um, and I foolishly, I have to say, I regret now in retrospect that I didn't um, uh, apply for citizenship a lot sooner. But uh, I don't know, I had, thinking back, I can't even really explain why. I know I had a Canadian friend living in Basel who had done it, and it had taken her over two years. And I sort of had this dumb idea that like, well, it takes so long, you know, why bother starting, which, you know, makes no sense. Um, But uh, one of the reasons that I finally decided to do it was actually um, not just that the the mayor of Zurich sent out this letter, which obviously wasn't just to me, but it was a a form letter. Um, But also uh, 2017 was the year that Donald Trump came to power. And I saw how quickly things could change in a country for residents who don't have citizenship. Uh, You know, he instituted this so-called Muslim ban. And all of a sudden, people who'd been living in the United States for many years and who'd left the country briefly to visit their family in Iran or wherever it might be, were not allowed back in. Right. And that was that was quite um, that was quite shocking to see. Um, you know, you sort of expect that as a so-called, you know, landed immigrant, permanent resident, whatever you want to call it, um, that you have more rights. Uh, but it turned out that those could be revoked, you know, really like on the spin of a coin. So I um, that was that was one of the main motivating factors. Let's get back to the personal, if you don't mind, for a second. Um, I would just like to find out, you know, like, did anything change? Because you became Swiss citizens, do you consider yourself to be more Swiss? I know it's a difficult question to answer, but anyways. Um, I would say for me, one of the main reasons I went ahead with it was that I could keep my British passport. If I had had to choose, as some people in Switzerland would like people to choose between being Swiss and being something else, like many, many countries do, I probably wouldn't have done it. Uh, but having done it, I'm very glad I have, partly because um, I am s- vaguely politically involved and so like to be able to vote on issues, partly, as Marcy said, security, although this isn't Trump land and things can't happen just on the whim of one person, but the largest party is the right-wing party and things could change. And not having that security, especially because... Uh, equal marriage doesn't exist here yet, and so I cannot marry my partner, so I don't have that security either. And with Brexit um, happening, I had no idea what would happen to Brits living abroad. And so all those things together made it sensible to do it. But I don't think it changed anything other than the fact that I actually uh, could put yes or no on the very important referendums recently. Mm. Um, So I think I'm still British but becoming more Swiss every day. We'll talk about that in a second. Marcy, how about you? Did anything change for you? Yeah, I would say. I mean, I I, I was surprised at how uh, emotionally I I reacted to it. Um, when the day that I went to the passport office to get my passport and to get my picture taken and I was waiting in line and there were some families around me with young children and the mothers were kind of like smoothing down their little son's collars and, you know, patting down their hair so they would look nice in their passport picture for their first Swiss passport. And I have to say it, it, it made me emotional. I really got a bit choked up. Um, you know, this whole question of citizenship and of who's allowed to be a citizen of which country and, you know, times and places in the world where people's lives were saved or not saved because of a piece of paper. Um, you know, that's something that I that I do take seriously. 
Um, and, you know, knowing uh, the history of Switzerland and, and Switzerland's, you know, failure during World War II to help Jewish refugees and, you know, Canada failed as well. And so did the United States. But I think Switzerland's failure was just that much, you know, because they're right on the border and because um, you know, for whatever reason, without getting into too many details, um, you know, these are I, I started thinking about those things. And, uh, and it, 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 it did become kind of emotional to me. And, um, yeah. And when I, when I, when I fill out the, uh, the voting forms, there is this certain feeling of, you know, I'm doing my civic duty and I have a say, and it's become kind of a joke among my friends. Um, you know, when people convert to a new religion and they have this zeal of the newly converted and they want to try to convince everyone, a lot of my friends who are longstanding Swiss or, you know, born Swiss um, don't take voting as seriously. And sometimes they'll miss a vote because they forgot to fill out the form and whatever. And then, you know, I'm horrified and I kind of go around reminding people, you know, in the week before uh, the deadline, you know, don't forget to vote. You have to vote. How could you not vote? And, you know, people in my circle find that like a little bit amusing. Mm -hmm. um, but, but uh, I, I, you know, I think it's, it's, it's really important, you know, people have fought and died to get the right to vote and, you know, take it seriously. So that, that's one thing. And if I could just say one other thing, um, one aspect of Switzerland that I find very noteworthy, although I have mixed feelings about it, is this whole idea of a, a country that's based on consensus and compromise and having to live with people that you know don't agree with you politically and I had kind of watched this happening over the years living here and having the right to vote myself now, I'm kind of living it from the other side so that, um, I don't know, I got in a conversation one evening uh, in my Pilates class with a guy in the Pilates class about one of the things that we were voting on. It was a question of whether like a bridge should be built in our neighborhood or not. And a lot of people were against it because they felt it would bring more traffic. Anyway, again, without getting into too many details, this person in my class told me that he was for the bridge and I was against the bridge. And all of a sudden it was kind of like, hmm, you know, uh, we have to accept that fact about each other and move beyond it and still continue to be sort of co-citizens and neighbors and, 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 you know, and accept those kind of differences. And I think there's an aspect of that, that system and that mentality, which is very positive. You know, people don't go around trying to like bash each other in the head, but on another level, um, and Dickin mentioned marriage equality before, there is something very unnerving when you get into situations where you have to like somehow convince your neighbors that you deserve the same human rights as them for certain reasons. Um, you yeah, know, but I, so I would rather try and convince my neighbors in a grown-up way than to have a polarized society where a court decides for everyone and then no one agrees with the outcome or half the country don't agree with the outcome. The one good thing about the political system here is it's very slow, but when change happens, it's usually with the majority of the population because the population decides rather than parliament or the court. And so many of the issues that plague especially America, like abortion or equal marriage, just aren't issues here once they're decided. They are off the agenda. And I love that about the system here. It is slow, it is frustrating, um, but when it happens, it does happen uh, with the consensus of the majority and not just of a minority elite. 
Absolutely. But again, there have been examples in Swiss history, you know, like the women didn't get the right to vote till 1971. Yeah. Um, you know, that would be an example where, you know, it took a very long time uh, to, to, and that was because men were voting on whether women would have the right to vote. And so that's where one group of people is voting about the human rights of another group of people that doesn't have a say in the matter. And, you know, those are the kind of questions. I remember in 2002, when I was already living here, and Switzerland decided, I don't know, 70 years later than the rest of the world to join the United Nations. Um, yeah, processes know, and, are and, slow, and, truly. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I do have mixed feelings about it. I agree with you, Dickin, that it's it's a way to, there's a lot of stability and there's a lot of, you know, that there's a good side to consensus, which causes, you know, helps to bring about stability. But um, sometimes, uh, sometimes it's just too slow. And I think, um, you know, the way we've seen Switzerland's reaction to the COVID crisis, and maybe we can talk about that in more detail, um, they really failed uh, partly because of the nature of their political decision-making system. Mm. We're in the midst of that discussion about what makes Swiss, Switzerland special, and we're talking about a democratic system. Um, yes, I mean, there are ways that we might agree upon that it's slow, but basically as a principle, I think that it, it differs greatly from the countries where we all come from. And as a bonus, right, we need to, to accept that system that people here need to agree more or less about things before they're done. Uh, yes, I think it is a bonus because um, it's partly the system of referendums so that people have a direct say, um, and but also partly because parliament is actually elected fairly, unlike Congress or the British or the Canadian parliaments, none of which have a fair election system. And so it means that one party is never in control and you're not flip-flopping every four years like every other country. So there is that stability and search for consensus. And I, yes, I accept it's slow and it's frustrating for me that I cannot marry my boyfriend here. And even if we get married in Britain, which we are allowed to do because I'm British, it would not be recognised here. Mm. But if you think women got the vote in 1971, two years before Roe versus Wade in America, and America is still arguing about abortion because it was decided by a court judgment, not by the people, whereas women's right to vote and women's right to abortion is a non-issue here. So I think slow is frustrating, but it's the better way to go because it involves people. May I say something about it just really quickly? Because when Roe versus Wade was decided, it was the consensus among the larger population. And based on um, public opinion polls, there's something like over 70% of Americans who believe that Roe is settled law. The fact that it's become such a huge bone of contention, again, in the last number of years, has a lot to do with um, right-wing agitators, far-right media, um, certain oligarchs who have pumped a lot of money into the system to destabilize it and to make the abortion issue this kind of red flag issue, you know, what they call a cultural issue to influence the American process. I think that's a whole, you know, that's a whole other, a whole other discussion. And, I, and I'm a little bit worried to notice here in Switzerland as well, the growth of this kind of far right disinformation machine that's poisoning people's minds and which ultimately will have a very nefarious effect on, on the political process in terms of getting that consensus that's based on, you know, access to, to good information. But um, besides that, yeah, I think it, it is more stable when things are decided in a referendum than when a Supreme Court kind of, you know, imposes a, a decision. Let me ask you, what, what do people say at home when you're in Canada or in Britain, if you tell them about the system here? Because I've noticed um, that people that I spoke to who were from, for example, France, were kind of like excited by the idea that he has 
every three months, you'll get to decide on matters like let's abolish the army or let's decide on how how high the percentage of cocoa and chocolate should be. And they find that incredibly democratic. What do people say in your in your countries of origin? Um, I think before Brexit, everyone thought it sounds like a wonderful idea to have referendums. Um, but after Brexit, I think most British people are thinking, why did we ever have a referendum? I and mean, we only have them every 40 years or so in Britain anyway. And we're not used to dealing with the after effects, whereas there's no Swiss adult alive who does not know the referendum system. So they're used to discussing it. They're used to dealing with defeat from their side, et cetera, et cetera. So I think people see it as a utopia that could not work in a bigger country. Well, Brexit would be another good example of, you know, a massive campaign of bad faith lies and disinformation, which was, you know, instituted uh, by certain groups that don't represent the majority and, and you know, with the disastrous results that, that, that we see. Um, but Brexit couldn't happen here in the same way because here one person cannot call a referendum <laughs> and the outcome has to be decided by Parliament and there's the chance always for a second or a third referendum. Mm -hmm. So the, the system here is very strictly regulated, mm -hmm. whereas in other countries it's very ad hoc. Mm -hmm. That's very true. And I mean, also when there's been cases here where when it's been found that official referendum flyers and information brochures have included misleading information, sometimes there's been a, a there they've they've demanded a redo of the vote. So the thing that happened in Britain with the you know the 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 the, the false advertising on the buses about the National Health Service and the European Union and so on that wouldn't have been allowed. I think the courts would have stopped that from happening. The thing with trying to explain Switzerland, and I think that was the topic that we kind of mm. started out with, you know, that was the inspiration for this show, was explaining Switzerland to non-Swiss or how Swiss people feel when they hear us as, you know, non-native Swiss. Um, it, it, it very quickly, you start to realize how much Switzerland really is a special case in a lot of ways. And it'll start out with a very you know, um, banal seeming question, like people will say, so who is the president or the prime minister of Switzerland? And then you have to start saying, well, actually, <laughs> Changes there's, every this year. there's this council of seven ministers and, hmm, and, and you know, you, you very quickly get into the, the really kind of special nature of the the, the structure of the Swiss political system. Um, and people, you know, have been quite fascinated to hear about it. When I talk to my family back home in Canada and I'll tell them, you know, they want, I'll say, well, I'm, I'm voting again, you know, again already. Well, it's been three months, you know, they, what are you voting on this time? And when I tell them the things that, that we're voting on, it's, it's always very interesting because yeah, sometimes it's very simple things like, you know, should a school get money to be renovated? And sometimes it's these very big issues, like Eric mentioned, you know, should the army be abolished? But I mean, let's be honest that some of those really big, you know, also red flag culture issues are kind of a fig leaf, to put it that way, right? Like there's, there's, you know, people can propose anything uh, and if it gets enough signatures, it'll go to vote. But um, the extent to which... Um, the possibility of real transformative progressive change 
uh, could occur is is still quite small. And we saw that recently also with the um, business responsibility initiative, which was supposed to try to um, force uh, companies based in Switzerland to be more ethically responsible in their doings around the world. And that was just torpedoed by, you know, a certain cabal of right wing business interests, including members of the Council of Ministers who actually violated the pact of the Council of Ministers and took sides and, and spread information that was inaccurate. Um, so, you know, that was a kind of, I don't want to say utopian, because it would have been actually very possible to institute it. But that was a kind of idealistic uh, attempt to, to create positive change that, you know, very clearly was going to be, you know, shot down by, by certain aspects of the of the business community and the far right, which is unfortunately better organized than the progressive left, like everywhere in the world. Yeah, but it's better to have that right than not to have it, right? Yes, and I and I think the important thing to remember is is that the uh, initiatives like the Responsible Business Initiative lost. But the flip side of that is that the far right is the largest party but does not have control. And so you have restrictions on both sides. So you have the immigration debate, which 15 years ago when I first moved here, the far right was winning every vote and now they lose every vote. Mm. And the, the system restricts the personalities themselves. So you have Christoph Blocher, who was the leader of the far-right party and could easily have ended up like President Trump in another system. But the Swiss system constrained him and his party and never gave him the power that he would have had as a president or prime minister in, say, Canada or Britain or or America. So I think there's uh, swings and roundabouts. You lose some, you win some, but generally the system keeps the extremes in check however you want to define the extremes and it's the middle ground that always has to win. We've talked a lot about the political system that sets apart Switzerland from other countries that we know pretty well. But I'd like to get into cultural matters as well. There must be other reasons why one would would want to stay in Switzerland. Dicken, you just mentioned that you've been here for 15 years. Did I get that right? Uh, yes. Marcy, you've been here for how long? Um, 25, something like that. That's quite, a long time. That's quite a bit of, uh, of time. There must be other matters that interest you in this country. I mean, um, you know, like the general cliche goes, this is a small country and it's really insignificant and really boring. I hate when people say that. Sorry to jump in. When, when, when people say Switzerland is boring, then I, I, my answer is like, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. And if anyone says that's boring, they've never been to Ottawa, really. Mm. Okay. Oh, for instance. For instance. Um, no, I think, I think there are lots of things. It's at the center of Europe. So I love the fact that in Bern, especially in an hour and a half, I can be in France, Germany or Italy for lunch if I want not at the moment, but normally I could mm. be. Um, but it's not that far from anywhere else. I love the fact that people here are fairly upfront in that um, they say what they mean and mean what they say. And there isn't that much... Um, of sort of shenanigans within relationships. It can be hard to make Swiss friends, but when you do, you actually know that it means something. And that extends to business as well. If the plumber says he'll come at 10, he's usually there at 10. If someone says they'll reply to an email today, they will reply today. And I've got used to that reliability. Um, It's a bit of a cliche. The trains don't always run on time, um, as I have often found out to my cost and been stranded in (laughs) Geneva. Um, But I think there's uh, a sense of you can trust what's around you here, um, whether that's the news or people, your neighbors or people you work with. 
And I really appreciate that. I think the quality of life here is really, really remarkable. Um, it's something absolutely to be appreciated. Um, the, the quality of the food, the, the cleanliness, the, you know, the good quality of the, um, of, of the air and the water and so on. You know, most Swiss cities are built uh, next to a lake or along a river and you can just jump in and swim anywhere. Whereas, you know, in Montreal, where I grew up, if you tried to stick a toe into the St. Lawrence River, it would, you'd probably lose it because, you know, everything is so polluted there. Uh, I think on you know on that level there's a there's there's a lot to be appreciated culturally there's a huge you know choice of of things on offer um, from you know uh, top level classical music to independent concerts a very up until Corona you know very thriving film scene music festivals film festivals theater literature and and so on and and of all different stripes you know not only the kind of you know classic. Um, you know, highbrow culture, but also, you know, on, on every level. I think part of the reason why people will come with this cliche of Switzerland being boring is that in the past, you know, there was a time when life here was much more repressive. And when, you know, you weren't allowed to sit on the grass and have a picnic next to the lake, the grass was just for looking at and, and um, you know, and, and there were much stricter rules about how long bars could stay open and things like that. But I mean, that was, you know, I don't know, 40 years ago, that's not that's not the case anymore. And and the people who tend to come up with this cliche of Switzerland being boring either have not visited since the 70s or early 80s, or they're people who, you know, kind of expats who came to live here for a few months, didn't bother to learn a language, didn't bother to meet local people, went to only expat events. And then, you know, it, it kind of peeves me that these people then get, you know, blog posts and book contracts and, and, you know, where they write all this kind of junk, you know, making fun of how Swiss people don't laugh on the tram or, you know, whatever they think uh, goes on on here. And in, in that respect, I'd, I'd like to just take the opportunity to compliment Dickens for having created a genre of kind of like, you know, observational literature, travel literature about Switzerland that, you know, you actually put in the time and the work and, and researched it so that, you know, because um, it, it just, it, it bugs me when you have these kind of expat bloggers, you know, coming by for, they live here for 10 minutes and then they leave and, and, you know, publish ridiculous articles about how, I don't know, their colleagues laughed at them for eating a sandwich at their desk or some, you know, trivial anecdote. There is uh, one word that I'd like to pick up, uh, one idea of, of Dickens, and Marcy, maybe you'd like to respond, is that idea of people being um, straightforward in what they say. Um, the popular cliche goes like, Germans do this, and, and they seem to get up everybody's nose in, in, in the German-speaking part of Switzerland, at least, uh, because of their directness. And Dickens now says that people in Switzerland are pretty straightforward and say what they think. Uh, yes, I mean, for me, it's one of the biggest culture shocks I had. Um, I wasn't expecting it at all. And all my Swiss friends still say, oh, but Germans are so direct. And I said, yeah, but as a British person, and British people are not direct at all, we go around the houses rather than say anything direct. Swiss people are very direct. And it took me a long time to get used to it. I now appreciate it. But for me, it's, it's when I first arrived here, it was almost verging on American rudeness in the way that British sensibilities are. I worked in a bookshop, <coughs> excuse me, for many years in Bern. And one of the biggest problems for me is a Swiss person would come up, and it was an English bookshop, so it wasn't the language problem. They would come up, put a book on the table and say, it's a gift. <laughs> and my immediate reaction was, well, thank you. Um, it's very kind. I don't know you. But what they meant was, was you have a wrapping service, would you wrap it for me? If you did that in a British bookshop, you would not get 
a good reaction, just stating a fact rather than saying, as we would, you would go around the house and say, oh, well, I know you have a wrapping service and this is my grandmother, it's her 80th birthday, would you mind wrapping it for me if you have time, awfully sorry to bother you type thing. Here it's much more direct and it's taken me a long time to get used to. Marcy? Well, I think these cultural questions are always very relative, right? So I can imagine that, yes, absolutely, compared to the British stiff upper lip, um, the Swiss are maybe very uh, direct, uh, definitely less direct than the Germans, or perhaps maybe less, um, there's this more of a finesse. You know, it's kind of, Switzerland has mastered this way of being a little bit more direct, but also polite about it. Whereas the, the stereotypical German behavior is to like dispense with all politeness and only be direct, you know, and that's where you get compliments. Like when I was younger, people would say to me, well, you're not, you know, you're not that pretty, but you have a really good personality, you know, and then you'd know that that was like a very sincere compliment. You know, you had to try to like take the compliment part out of it, not the insult. Um, and that's not something that Swiss people would say. And it's certainly not something that, that Canadians would tend to say. I find Swiss people compared to Canadians or North Americans a little bit retiring sometimes in the sense that, you know, if you go into the supermarket and say hello to the cashier, you'll probably get a weird look um, because there are different rules here about how you behave publicly compared to how you behave, you know, at home with your friends. And Canada, you know, Canada's not perfect as a country for sure. Although I would have liked to uh, contradict a little bit of what Dickens said earlier about the the um, Ottawa in lack of validity of the no Ottawa as well, <laughs> but no, but he was saying that the Canadian electoral system is just as crooked as the United States and Britain. I would kind of object to that, but let's leave that aside. Um, it's certainly in terms of you know Canada has had marriage equality; it was one of the first countries in the world to have it. They legalized marijuana. You know, on a lot of levels, Canada is not so bad in terms of those cultural questions. But um, in terms of the friendliness, um, you know, when I was a student in Toronto and you'd be sitting in a cafe with friends, maybe discussing a film that you'd seen recently, people at the next table would overhear and they would join in. Oh, we also saw that film and we loved it. And they would bring their chairs over and sit with you. And and that was a kind of like public socializing culture that I was accustomed to. Um, if you sneezed on the bus, five people would turn and say to you, you know, bless you or whatever. And they don't do that here. When you sneeze on the bus, nobody wishes you uh, good health. If anything, they kind of give you a dirty look because mm. you're spreading germs. Um, so, you know, I think there, there it is relative, but in terms of the trustworthiness or, or the the, um, you know, straight from the shoulder, what Dickin was saying uh, in terms of, you know, if somebody like a handshake is a deal and if people promise to do something, they probably will do it. And, and that's something that I experienced a lot during the citizenship process where, you know, you would send in a certain amount of documents and you get a letter back saying, you know, we've received your file. We're very busy, but we'll get back to you within so and so many months or whatever. Like you kind of always knew where you where you stood with it. Um, and on, on the level of bureaucracy and, and the functioning of state apparatuses and so on, there's definitely uh, more transparency than, than, than in other places. Both of you have lived here for a pretty long time, 15 years, 25 years. Um, you've also outwardly sort of accepted your inner Swissness. Did you become more Swiss in that time? 15 years, 25 years is a long time. Something is supposed to rub off on you. Well, I think, you know, when you've when you've lived in different places and I've, I've not only lived in Canada and in, I've lived in different cities and different countries and spent time in different places, even during the time that I lived here, I also spent extended periods of time in other places. Um, you kind of make it difficult for yourself because um, you'll always be missing the thing from the other place. 
Um, and, you know, when I often, you know, there are a lot of things about Canada that I miss, you know, first and foremost, the people, you know, friends and family, but also, you know, certain places, certain foods, certain um, ways of communicating. Uh, but of course, when I go there on holiday to visit people, I miss certain things about Switzerland and, you know, where's the good cheese and why does the coffee taste so bad and, you know, things like <laughs> that. Um, and, and I think people who know me, I mean, in terms of the Swiss culture, I'll always be, you know, this brash Canadian who's always putting her foot in it because I am more outspoken than they are. Um, whereas maybe for Canadians, I've become a little bit more persnickety. Uh, I, I, it's, you know, it's, it's a bit hard to judge, but probably I've, I've, one thing that I do notice that bothers me, and it, it, it's probably been on display the whole time that we've been talking, is I've gotten this certain Swiss cadence in the way that I speak English, if I'm not careful. You know, there's this kind of Swiss sing-song of the way people, Swiss Germans, uh, speak. And I think I've, I've, that's crept into my language without, um, you know, if I don't, um, if I'm not vigilant. I thought that was just your nice Canadian accent. <laughs> <laughs> um, have I become more Swiss? I think I'm definitely more punctual. Um, than I used to be, and I expect it in others. Even mm. when, even in the age of mobile phones, when people can text and say I'm running late, um, I've just got used to a Swiss mentality of trains leaving on time, which is very frustrating when you go back to Britain, where at least we still have trains, but they almost never run on time. Um, but also, just in terms of with friends, I mean, most of my friends, Swiss friends, um, because I have a Swiss partner, the most of our friend circle are Swiss anyway, by default. I didn't have that expat bubble experience. I was thrown in at the deep end. Um, it's If you're running 15 minutes late and no one's let you know, then they won't be there, basically. They don't wait around for half an hour because you're late. Um, it's basically you're on time or you let people know or they're not there. And I've kind of got used to that in whatever I'm doing, whether it's work or, or socialising. I've also... Uh, I've had to rethink a few things. Um, I'm British, so I queue naturally as part of my DNA. And Swiss people cannot queue to save their life at all. Mm. Corona has enforced queuing, which I have loved. The only thing I've loved about Corona in <laughs> Switzerland is enforced queuing. Um, so I do miss the fact that queues here up until Corona just do not exist generally unless they are enforced by a ticketing system. And um, I think that... Those sort of little things for me, you have to bear in mind when you're living in a foreign country, which becomes your own country, you bring some of your own things with you and then you have to leave some of your own things behind. Otherwise, you end up being unhappy and frustrated. Um, so I get emails all the time, especially from North Americans. It's like, why are the shops stuck in 1980? What happened to shop opening hours? Um, and you try and explain it's about work-life balance and blah, blah, blah. And they just want instant everything. And you think... Unless you try and fit in, you'll always be frustrated and unhappy. So I do, I do try and uh, fight the urge to queue. Um, I'm not very good at it. Um, but there are some things which I'm happy that I've changed in terms of becoming more Swiss. I, I just want to say I can very much relate to the queuing issue, although in Canada we would call that lining up. But there is that same culture of, you know, you wait in line, you wait your turn, nobody pushes to the front of the line mm -hmm. and, and so on. And that's always shocking for us when we go to places in the world, which I think most places don't uh, abide by that very British uh, concept. One thing I will say that I always admired about people here is that I think on in general, on average, Swiss people tend to be better 
educated and better informed about the world than other places. And I'm not talking necessarily only about people who, you know, live in kind of academic uh, circles, which I sometimes travel in, but even just kind of generally the knowledge here of geography, um, uh, of international politics, of the basic likelihood that the person you're speaking to might know a second, third, or even fourth language because they learned it in middle school, um, I think is is much more advanced here than than in other places. And that's something I've always appreciated here. When I grew up in Montreal in the 70s and 80s, there was this big discussion about whether French children should be forced to learn English and whether English children should be forced to learn French. And there's a whole generation of people around my age who, especially the Francophone ones who grew up without having English imposed on them by, you know, uh, the English uh, overlords and therefore are unable to function in a globalized world or use a computer. Uh, and when I came to Switzerland, Zurich was in the middle of a big discussion about um should children learn English or French first uh, and Italian later or, you know, how like it, it and, and, and I think, you know, that was for me very eye opening in terms of, mm. you know, what is a truly cosmopolitan society and what is the, the kind of the duty of society and the duty of public schools in terms of, of educating its, its children. I think the education system here has worked great. Uh, I'm sad to see it now under siege and under attack by these same, you know, neoliberal and right wing forces that want to save money in all the wrong places. Um, so I feel like the time has come now. Switzerland to me is a bit at a crossroads in terms of um, a lot of the things that made it great uh, up until recently are, are now um, under attack. And I think this is something that people need to take uh, very seriously. I hope that it's going to stay that way in Switzerland as well. Um, let me just ask you, did you ever consider going back to Canada or, or, or Britain, respectively? Uh, not yet. Not yet? Hmm. Not yet. I mean, uh, I came... I always say there's only two reasons people really move to Switzerland. It's love or money. Um, you come because someone you love is here, whether that's your partner or your parents or whatever, or you come for your job. Um People generally don't move here voluntarily for any other reason. I came for love. I'm still waiting for the money. It's taking a long time to arrive. But uh, I think the longer I stay, the more chance I have of finding it somewhere. And to be honest, Brexit Britain at the moment is not a place I want to move back to. Um, although obviously I miss lots of things about Britain. Uh, it's not that far away. And before Corona, I would go over two, three times a year and catch up with friends and family and go to the theatre without having to think all the time in a different language and things like that. Um, but at the moment, Britain, I am not wanting to go back to. I'd much rather stay here. Marcy? Well, I, I guess I'm that rare bird who did not come here for either love or money. I came here, like, to have a good time. I don't know. Um, I, I, I came here originally on a, on a work exchange. I came on an international internship. Um, so it was, uh, money isn't really the right word. Uh, it was for work experience, because as a stagiaire, you don't really earn that much money. But um, I came here for the adventure, and uh, I ended up staying Um Work-wise and culturally, it's been very interesting. Um, I've become a person who can actually write and publish in German and who can also, um, you know, work in three languages um, in speaking. And and that's something that's been, uh, I think, a, a huge bonus. Um, there was never a point where I felt like, you know, things aren't working out here. I think I need to go home. 
And I've been lucky up until recently that I was able to travel a lot and spend a lot of time, you know, back in Canada visiting relatives or in other parts of the world where I have good friends and also family. Um, one of the, as Dickin mentioned, one of the advantages of Switzerland is it's very easy to leave here and, and visit other places. Um, so living here hasn't really been, uh, it hasn't meant kind of making sacrifices in that way. On the contrary, I feel, you know, very privileged. Um, but, you know, it's it's hard to know which way which way the world is going. At the moment, I feel very safe and secure living here. Although I guess up until the coronavirus, I felt that. Now, I, like I say, I'm a bit uh, disconcerted at the way um, Switzerland handled the pandemic compared to other countries. Because I think it's pretty clear based on the statistics that Switzerland did not do a good job. I mean, no one did a good job uh, worldwide, except for New Zealand, I don't know, but, um, and Iceland, uh, you know, two island countries. Uh, but but um, I think Switzerland- That didn't help Britain. Considering, considering it's, it's, yeah, that's true. Considering it's, it's culture <laughs> of, you know, preparedness and readiness and hygiene and, 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 uh, and, and, and civil um, solidarity and all these things that it's supposedly believed in and that, you know, the bomb shelters that are always there just in case. Um, I'm, I'm really actually shocked at how badly the, the pandemic was handled here. So that's been a bit of a, a rude awakening. But besides that, um, uh, I, yeah, I feel lucky that I've that I've been able to live here and that it's worked out and that, um, yeah, as a person who works in culture and um, will never get rich, that I, I there's still a place for me in this society. Switzerland, that was the topic of today's discussion in the Kulturstammtisch. Thank you very much for participating. Marcy Goldberg, film scholar and cultural critic from Canada originally, and Tick and Buse from Britain, author of books about Switzerland. Thank you very much. My name is Eric Fekun. <laughs>